Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. How many have heard that one before? Here's another one. Look at it in the New Living Translation. Direct your children onto the right path, and when they are older, they will not leave it. And let's look at it out of the Passion Translation. Dedicate your children to God and point them in the way they should go and the values they've learned from you will be with them for life. A couple of weeks ago, I began a lesson on dealing with the daily demons of stress. I knew the Lord stirred my heart to teach on that, but I had no idea of the response I would receive. And after a couple of weeks of hundreds of hundreds of responses, not only on social media, but emails and texts and letters, I've come to realize we're all stressed out. Everybody in the world is stressed out. And uh, so let's do just a quick review. Number one, everybody deals with stress. If you're going through a stressful time right now, understand you're not uh, a special case. Everybody deals with stress. Stress is a constant companion of living in this age and culture. So if you're, if you're encountering some stress right now, don't feel bad. Everybody deals with it. You're not alone. Number two, most of us spend hundreds of dollars yearly trying to escape stress. It's called vacations. It's called extended vacations. It's called long weekends. We spend hundreds of dollars. We plan it. We promote it. We even get on social media and and give everybody the countdown. 120 more days and then I'm out of here. 119 days and I'm out of here. People are doing everything in their power to escape stress. Number three, if we do not learn how to deal with stress, since it's part of our life, we will pull back, retreat, or quit. And that's never God's plan for us to retreat or quit. Never God's plan. Number four, when we don't deal correctly or when we don't correctly deal with the daily demons of stress, our stress will become distress. Now, all of us live in stress, but we don't have to live in distress. Well, what's the difference, Pastor? Here's what I taught you. Stress is a state of mental or emotional strain or tension resulting from adverse or very demanding circumstances. Stress is a state of mental or emotional strain or tension resulting from adverse or very demanding circumstances. And every one of us deal with that. Every one of us deal with that every day. Where it goes into distress is when it becomes extreme anxiety sorrow or pain and it begins to affect our way of life and how we're living and how we're emotionally relating to others and what's going on in our life. Number five, when stressful situations surface, don't freak out and don't run from it. Instead, choose to overcome it. We all deal with it. You can either be a winner over it or a loser of it. And I choose as a child of God to do, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Jesus said, look what Jesus said in John 16, 33. 
Jesus said this in John 16, And everything I've taught you is so that the peace which is in me will be in you and will give you great confidence as you rest in me. For in this unbelieving world, you will experience trouble and sorrow. You know what he's saying? In this world, you're going to have stress. You're going to have stress. But be courageous. Don't run. Don't freak out. Be courageous, for I have conquered the world. So when stressful situations appear, don't freak out. Don't run from it. Choose to overcome it. Jesus said you could. He's given you his peace and his courage. Number six, when stressful situations are present, encourage yourself and engage the stress. I'm watching uh, so many believers today, Christians, children of God, falling away from their passion for Christ because they're getting stressed out. Stress, life is invading them. The pressures of life, the busyness of life, the troubles of life, the stress of life is invading their life and they're falling away. They're starting to miss church. They're starting to miss their devotional times. You can tell in their passion for Christ is is starting to wane. And it's just because stress. They're trying to deal with stress in the natural. When stress occurs, the first thing you need to look at is yourself and get yourself built up, and then you attack the stress. See? Look what it says in Psalm chapter 4, verse 1. David was in stress, man. He was struggling. He said, God, you are my righteousness, my champion defender. Notice he didn't say, I'm my champion defender. I'm a great mighty man of battle. He says, you are my defender. Answer me when I cry for help. Whenever I was in distress, notice what he says, you enlarged me. You gave me more power. You gave me more strength. Paul said it this way in the New Testament. He says, in my weakness, he becomes strong. He becomes strong. So when stress occurs in your life, when it appears, when it surfaces, the first thing you and I need to do is get ourselves built up. Encourage yourself. Satan's trying to steal your relationship with Jesus. He doesn't care if you go to heaven. He knows your ticket's punched and your name's written in the Lamb's book of life. He he knows he's lost that battle. But what he's after now is your passion for Christ because if you're passionate about Jesus, you won't go to heaven alone. And people who are indifferent about Jesus always go to heaven alone. So if he can't keep you out of heaven, he'll keep you and I from taking somebody with us. And he'll bring stressors in our life, and we get so stressed out, we fall away from our passion with Christ, and we're not an effective witness, and he's accomplished his purpose. The stress passes. The situation will go away. A few months from now, it won't even be a, it'll be a distant memory. But if he has been successful in stealing your passion from Christ, then he has kept you away from Jesus. And he's slipping in so many of us, he comes in our back door to steal our relationship with Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit that lives in every child of God, that lives in you. How many of you, how many of you know Jesus, have Jesus in your heart? Do you know you have, the, you have the greater one on the inside of you this morning? Greater than any stress, greater than any pressure, greater than any anxiety. The greater one, the Holy Spirit that lives in every child of God is greater than the stress attacking the child of God. 
In other words, the, the power of God on the inside of you is greater than the forces coming against you. And we must listen and yield to the Spirit of God that's on the inside of us in times of stress. Instead of listening to the fear of the stressful situations. Number seven, when stress intensifies, circle the wagons. Don't go through it alone. You're not Superman. Nobody expects you to be. Circle the wagons. Look at Psalm 14, one, I mean Psalm 142. Look at Psalm 142. I'm going to read seven verses. And it says this, I'm reading out of the Passion, I put it on the screen. God, I'm crying out to you. I lift my voice boldly to beg for your mercy. I spill out my heart to you and tell you all my troubles. For when I am desperate, when I was desperate, overwhelmed, and about to give up. Now that's stressful, I don't know about you. That's, that sounds stressful to me. He's getting ready to throw in the towel. You were the only one there to help. You gave me a way of escape from the hidden traps of my enemies. Notice verse 4. I look to my left and right to see if there is anyone who would help, but there's no one who takes notice of me. Has anybody felt like that beside my man? Listen, it is not a sin or a sign of weakness to seek help and counsel. When the stress of life comes. It's not a sin or sign of weakness to seek help and counsel when the stress of life intensifies and comes. In fact, isolation is a dangerous place to be in stressful times. And Satan wants you to yourself. He don't want you around other people because they'll speak faith into you. They'll speak the right people. Let me say that. He don't want you around the right people because right people won't patty cake that devil. They'll speak faith to your life, you know. And he doesn't want you there. He wants you isolated all by yourself so he can work on your mind. He can work on your mind. So circle the wagons when stress comes. Turn Number eight. Number eight. Disarm stress by discontinuing the unnecessary. These things we've already talked about. Disarm stress by discontinuing the unnecessary. The perception that we need to have it all, do it all, experience it all, see it all, or have, all, have it all the time is a major cause of stress in all of our lives. You know, to be honest with you, most of us create our own stressors. Because we will not say no. We got to do it all, see it all, have it all, go to it all. And because of that, we put our own lives under the, the, the stressors of time management and things of that nature. Financial pressure. Financial pressure. Because we couldn't say no. We had to have it all. And we must, we must learn, if we're going to eliminate stress in our life, is to discontinue the unnecessary. Look at Matthew sixteen twenty six. Matthew 16, verse number 26 Matthew 16, 26 says this, And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? No, no. Now that's review. Let's take for a few moments this morning and talk about one of our major stressors. 
That's our kids. Can I get an amen in the house? If you know me, you know that I love kids. In fact, I love kids a lot more than I love adults. I'd rather be around kids any day than adults. Kids are not as critical and not as judgmental as adults. They have a lot more fun. But raising, maintaining children, navigating their schedules, walking through their drama in addition to all of our drama can be very stressful. Probably one of the most misunderstood and misapplied verses in the Bible is the one I read at the beginning of this lesson. Go back to Proverbs 22, 6 in the New King James. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he'll not depart from it. Dozens of times over the years, literally dozens of times, I've had parents quote this verse to me after their child had a failure. They had a breakdown, or they made a poor decision. And that parent couldn't understand how their perfect child could have behaved that way. And they always quote this verse. Pastor, it didn't work. It didn't work. It didn't work. Look what it says in the Passion again. Dedicate your children to God. Point them in the way that they should go. And the values. Everybody say the values. The values they've learned from you will be with them for life. Nowhere in that scripture does it say that our children will not fail. Nowhere in that scripture does it say if you take them to church and pray with them that they'll not make a mistake. Nowhere does it say that. It just says that if you do, if you teach them the Word of God, place the Word of God in them, train them how to walk through the difficult seasons of life and the celebration seasons of life, that when they get older and are able to think on their own, that value will rise up in them that you've taught them. That good value will taught them. I, I've noticed that over, uh, over the years, when our children excel, when they do good, there is no stress. When they make the grades in class, when they win the game, when someone compliments their behavior or they're chosen for advancement, there's no stress. They are our pride and joy. They are a thrill and a, and a celebration to raise. There's no stress when our kids make the right choices or choose the right path. When their decisions are well thought out and their actions have purpose and integrity, there is no stress. They're easy to accept as our own. But when they mess up, they are your wife's son. You're your father's daughter. They're not easy to accept when they mess up. The reality is our perfect, beautiful, angelic babies are not always angels. And in those moments when they are not, the stress comes. Each of us have wonderful dreams and aspirations for our children. We do everything in our power and our ability to set them up for success in life. And here's what I've even noticed. In our eyes, our children are the best. Their talent is unequaled. 
Their aptitude is scholarly. And their appearance is unblemished. Our kids are as close to perfect as they could possibly be. The thought that they could fail or someone will not recognize their greatness rarely enters our mind. But the reality is our children will fail. Life will be unkind and people will treat them unfairly. Can I get an amen in the house? What does it say? Proverbs 22, 6. Dedicate your children to God and point them in the way they shall go and the values that they learn from you will be with them for life. What type of values are you teaching your children? What type of values are we teaching our children? How are we training them to deal with the stress of life? We are setting them up for success, but are we teaching them how to bounce back from failure? What do they see and model after our life when we've gone through failure that they're going to model the same behavior? How do we act in failure and they in turn will, that will be instilled as a value in them. They will act that same way out when they go through failure. Thirty years ago, our firstborn taught I, when I when I was a young preacher boy and had dark hair, I would teach on the family and people would come up to me and and I would say I'd say now nah, I'm not I've only got a two year old or a three year old or so I ain't got all this parenting figured out but I read this at least I was honest and people would come up to me as a young preacher and say well you don't have a clue you don't have a Well, let me tell you something. I got a 32-year-old and a 27-year-old. I got a clue. I got a clue. When our son was two, three years old, our firstborn, um, he was a toddler. He was the cream of the crop. He was born ugly, but he got over that ugly. I mean, he was. He was ugly. He was eight weeks premature, shriveled up, just, you know, he didn't look good. But he got over ugly real quick. He was the cream of the crop, all boys, cars, trucks, and balls. He just wanted to play ball, all the time play ball, cars and trucks. We decided to take our first family vacation we saved up enough money, had been saving, talking about it all year. We wanted to take our little boy to the beach. We wanted our little boy to experience the beach and the ocean for the very first time. We hadn't been there ourselves very much, so it was a good, a good trip for all of us. For weeks before we went, we would show him pictures of the beach and the ocean. We watched mu- movies of the beach and the ocean. We talked about the sand and the water. We talked about how much fun we were going to have rolling his cars in the sand and the water and driving his trucks in the sand. Oh, man, we were excited. Finally, the day arrived, and we headed to Myrtle Beach. Eight hours later, we pulled into our hotel right across the street from the beach. Tyler was asleep in the car seat, and I told Amanda to wake him up. I wanted to take my son to the beach. 
We quickly unloaded the car, put our luggage in the room, and went down to the beach. I remember carrying him down to the water's edge as just a toddler and putting him down on the sand where the water would barely come up on touch his feet. A wave came in and trickled up, and we yelled, we hollered. The water ran across his little feet. He looked down at it, it squealed. He looked at us and laughed and pointed. This is exactly how I thought it would be, enjoying a first experience with your firstborn son. Priceless. Absolutely priceless. Amanda and I looked at each other with pride. Look what we made. Look how, look how fantastic we are blessed. And we cheered with him. The water would come in over his little toes and feet. He would just squeal and do his feet. But the next thing that happened, we were not prepared for. The water that came in and brushed across his feet started to recede. And when it did, the sand under his little feet started to give way. Before I could get to him, our laughing, joyful little boy did a slow-motion, head-first dive right into the sand. As a toddler, he didn't even know to put his hands out. He just... And you know what his mama did? She started cussing me. No, she didn't. No, she didn't. No, she didn't. She didn't. You men know what I'm talking about. For the next two days, for the next two days, we couldn't get him close to the beast without him screaming and hollering and crying. You know, sometimes our best-made plans and intentions for our children don't go right. Our aspirations and dreams for our children don't always turn out the way we dream. And sometimes our kids make wrong choices and do unwise things. And when that happens, stress. Stress. As much as we hate it, our children will fall and fail. They will lose control. They will make poor choices and will encounter shame, grief, and remorse. Worse yet, they will not always know how to get back up when they fall. And these are the times that parents are needed the most. These are the times in which you instill values, as the Scripture said, that will last them for life. Often during the harsh seasons of life, we are most receptive to learn, grow, and mature. People say this all the time to me. say, well, Pastor, God sent this sickness because He taught me this through this sickness. No, God didn't send the sickness. Satan sent the sickness. You just slowed down long enough while you're sick to learn a little bit. You could have learned without it, but you were too busy living life to take time to slow down and learn. 
It's often during the harsh seasons of life we are more receptive to learn, grow, and mature. I, I wished it wasn't that way. That's just human nature. Sometimes it takes difficult moments of our life to get us to slow down and to grow up and to see things accurately. And as parents, to be honest with you, we want to take away all the hurts. We don't want them to go through hard seasons. We don't want them to go through tough times. We want to eliminate that from their life. But we know that there's some lessons we learned when we went through hard times that we wouldn't have learned if we hadn't gone through them. But at the same time, we don't want our kids to go through them. So in other words, our children many times will not learn the lessons of life. But there comes a time, so we try to eliminate them. Don't want them to get hurt. Want to heal their boo-boos, take care of them, defend them, get them out of any situation that's uncomfortable for them or anybody would ever treat them in, uh, in, a, in, a, in a bad way. Yeah, we're going to protect them, and that's the job of parents. But there comes a time that parents can't take away the hurt and our role changes. As they start to get older, you can't go beat up every bully. And you can't pay every credit card that they've run up. And you can't make everything right at the job where they didn't show up. There comes a time that parents can't take away the hurt and our role changes. We must help our children see God even in the harsh times. Our children have experienced failure and we've watched it. Our children have experienced failure. And we've watched it materialize in several different ways. And your children will experience the same type of failure. One failure is an unprovoked circumstance. An unprovoked circumstance. Our child didn't do anything wrong. Your child didn't do anything wrong. Something just unfortunate happened to them. Unprovoked circumstances are tough moments. Because there's really, as a parent, there's nothing you can do about it. There's nothing to repent of, nothing to make better, and nothing you could have done differently. The unfairness of life just touched your child. These are the moments when parents must know the Word of God. You can't fix it. You can't make it right. You have no authority in the situation. At that moment, when you feel helpless as a parent to wipe away their hurt, it's at that moment your children need to know the Word of God. It's during this moment that all of us, children included, will internalize if we're not careful. This happened to me because I'm not smart enough. This happened to me because I'm not pretty enough. This happened to me because I'm not talented enough. And if we're not careful, we'll begin to internalize and our children will begin to internalize that these things happen because they're not good enough. That's why it's so important that everyday parents, we teach our children that their identity is in Jesus Christ and not in their a position on the ball field or their position in the, on the basketball court or their place in the classroom or their, the way they look or what they wear or what they drive. Our identity is in Jesus Christ. It's in Jesus Christ. When things, when, un, when the unfairness of life invade our children's life, and they begin to internalize why it happened, why this happened, why that happened, I'm not, I'm not, I can't, I'm not. 
They need to realize their identity is in Jesus Christ, and they can do all things through Christ. It's easy to see families. You see them. You might be have them in your family who do not have correct values in their family fu- culture. And the whole family, they're victims. They're victims. They're mad at the rich people. They're mad at the white people. They're mad at the black people. They're mad at the Democrats. They're mad at the Republicans. They're mad at the uh, uh, police. They're mad at the state troopers. They're mad at the president. They're mad at the politicians. They're just victims their whole life. Victims their whole life. Their identity has been marred because something unprovoked took place that caused them pain and hurt. And now they've changed their whole value, blaming others. They're a victim. And as children of the Most High God, we're not victims of anything. We are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. We have been made to sit with Him in heavenly places. All things are underneath our feet. In Jesus' name. So understand, there's going to be some unprovoked circumstances that's going to happen to your kid. There's going to happen. And you at that time must make sure they know who they are in Christ Jesus. Number two, not only are there unprovoked circumstances, there's unmet opportunities. Sometimes our children fail because they just didn't Rise to the occasion that was before them. Our child doesn't succeed in a dream or a goal. Maybe they tried out for a team and didn't make it. Your daughter dreamed of being the lead character in the school play, but wasn't selected. They wanted to get in a certain university, but they didn't have the grades. The longer the dream has existed, the harder the fall will be. When our children encounter unmet opportunities, it's important that we explain to them, now listen to me, God's pruning process. Now if you don't hear anything else I say this morning, I want you to lock in now for the next eight minutes. We all need to understand God's pruning process. Turn with me to John chapter 15. Turn over to John chapter 15, verse number 1 and 2. John chapter 15, verse 1 and 2 in the New Living Translation. John chapter 15, verse 1 and 2. Notice what it says. I, Jesus said, I am the true grapevine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch of mine that doesn't produce fruit. And notice this next phrase. And he prunes the branches that do bear fruit so that they will produce even more. We don't hear much about this anymore. Joel Osteen don't talk about this much. Brother Furtick over in North Carolina, he don't talk about this much. You don't hear this in the faith camp. But there's a scripture in the Bible. You've got to read it. It's in there. And he says this. Whoever bears fruit, they're going to get pruned. And it's not a punishment thing. It's to make you better. Notice what he says. He cuts off every branch of mine that doesn't produce fruit, and he prunes the branches that do bear fruit. Well, that don't seem right. If I'm bearing fruit, they ought to let me alone, let me do my own thing. 
I'm doing good, aren't I? I'm bearing fruit. No. He's going to prune you. And the pruning can be painful. It can be lonely. It can be difficult. The Scriptures tell us we see through a glass darkly. It doesn't say we're blind. It just says that we can't see clearly the whole future. We can't see it with clarity. We can't see our future with clarity. But God can. And what I've noticed, we get the destination right. I want to do this. I want to accomplish this. My destiny is this. But the path toward the destination is where we sometimes get off. Jesus tells us that if we are fruit bearers, if we're moving toward our destiny and purpose in life, we will go through a pruning, a cutting away, an elimination of some things. And the pruning purpose is not to punish or withhold, but to remove things, people, and possibilities that could hinder us down the path that we can't see yet. The pruning purpose is not to punish or withhold, but to remove things, people, and possibilities that could hinder us down the path which we can't yet see. Our daughter, Casey, all of you know her, and most of you know her. She, uh, she excelled. I tell people all the time, she was the perfect daughter, just the perfect daughter. Is she here this morning? You don't know? You're her husband. I didn't say she is the perfect wife. I said she is the perfect daughter. I'm not responsible for the wife thing. That's her mama's job. That's her mama. I tell people she was the perfect daughter. She was our ruse girl. Now we had a son that wasn't the perfect son. Uh, good looking, great ball player, but he, he, he wasn't perfect. And I'll tell you he wasn't. Now, you can't say he wasn't perfect, but I'll tell you he's, he wasn't perfect. But we had the perfect daughter. She was our rules girl. If she had a homework assignment that was due in a month, she had it due the day after it was assigned. Our son, if he had a homework assignment that was due in the month, at 10 o'clock the day before it was due, a month later, he wanted to go to Walmart and get poster board and let's get this thing done. Anybody know what, have a kid like that? All right. But not our girl, man. She, she had an assignment due in two weeks. She was on it the next day, had it finished. If the ruse said do this, do that. She would tell me all the time, you're driving too fast. I said, I'm driving this car. She's eight, nine years old. Speed limit says 55. <laughs> she, just, she was our ruse girl, our ruse girl, our ruse girl. Everything she dreamed, everything she wanted to do, everything she wanted to accomplish, it seemed like she did it. I'm going to tell you something. She was a giver. All of her birthday money, she tithed on her birthday money. All of her Christmas money, she tithed on her Christmas money. She, was, she never let the offering plate go by without giving something. I'd tell her, honey, you don't have to give. You ain't got a job. Every time it would go by, she would put something in the offering plate. She, and God's blessings followed the girl. I mean, they just followed her. I mean, I'd borrow money from her. She had, she had money. Her brother... Her brother would steal money, borrow money. Remember, 
Remember I told you he wasn't a good boy all the time. She dreamed of when she was in the eighth grade. Her eighth grade teacher did a cool thing. Right before they got out of the eighth grade for the summer, the teacher said, I want you to write down on a piece of paper in four years when you graduate from high school where you want to go to college and what you want to do with your life. We didn't know she did it. A week after she graduated from high school, we get a letter in the mail. And it's addressed to Casey and her parents. And Amanda and Casey opened it up. Amanda began to weep. And Casey realized four years earlier it was that letter. Her teacher had sent it to her four years later. And in that letter, Casey had written four years earlier to an eighth grader, when I graduate from high school, I want to go to Middle Tennessee State University and ride horses for the equine team. Four years later, after she graduated from high school, she went to MTSU and rode horses for the Middle Tennessee State University equine team. She said, I'm always going to be a horse champion. She was reserve champion for the University of uh, Middle Tennessee State University, 8,000 riders in college, and she was number two in the nation, the reserve champion in the nation. Only beat by a six-foot-two Ohio State kid. Six-foot-two Ohio State guy. Big, tall guy. Casey's short, so he, he beat her. Everything she ever wanted to accomplish, she accomplished. Amazing. I just sat in amazement of her. She wanted to go to business college. She went to the business school over there, graduated. Had all kind of leadership awards. Did great. Then she's graduating and she said, Dad, I just, I'm kind of stuck on what direction to go next. I said, well, what are you praying about? She said, well, I got several things in my heart, but I just need, maybe if you could help me. I said, well, I know some bankers. Let me call some bankers. So I called some bankers and I got her hired at one of our local banks. And she found out that they had a leadership program for management. And she had excelled in all that. And and so she applied. Went through about three months working, four or five months working there. And applied and never heard nothing. Finally, they called her in one day. And uh, they told her, said, we're sorry. Uh, You don't have the qualities to be a leader. Uh, You don't. You, you just don't, we've watched you, you don't have the qualities to be a leader. You won't fit with our program. You can go be a teller, nothing wrong with being a teller, uh, but you can be a teller, but you, you just don't have the qualities to be a leader. It was the first time in her life that she had ever tried something and didn't make it. I'm telling you the honest truth. She was just that blessed. And she came home crushed. I came home crushed. I took all my money out of that bank. (laughs) Forget you. I might not can change the situation, but I ain't going to play your game. She was heartbroken. 
But we said, your identity is not based on what other people think of you. Your identity is who you are in Christ Jesus. And the call and the gift of God upon your life. You just keep pursuing. Five years later. She's the CEO and president of a multi-million dollar company. Her own company. The truth is. The truth is. God puts all of our children through the pruning process. Not to punish them but to cut away the things that he knows could prohibit or hinder down the road that we cannot see. Finally, the third thing our children often fail in is a moral compromise. Whether intentional or unintentional, sometimes our children make poor choices And don't always choose best. Over the years, I've watched parents handle their child's moral failure one of three ways. They approach it the shame and blame. I can't believe you did that. You was raised better than that. My God, you know better than that. Well, you made your bed. You're going to have to live in it. Dad, gum it, you. You're acting just like your mama's family. That's just the way they act. (laughs) You're going to turn out to be nothing just like them. That's the shame and blame approach. That's the shame and blame approach. Condemnation, accusation are verbalized and acted out with the shame and blame approach. Listen, if that's how you deal with your child's moral collapse, forget it. They'll never tell you anything else. You'll be hunting to find information for the rest of your life about your children. You'll read about it somewhere else. Somebody else will tell you. Because none of us care for the shame and blame approach of condemnation and accusation. The second way parents handle a moral compromise or collapse with their children is, number one, is the shame and blame approach. Number two is the shift and change approach. Parents start shifting their attitude toward their child's behavior and eventually change their own moral compass because they're unwilling to confront their child's sin. I have parents... I have parents that 10 years ago believed something was a sin, but because their children got involved with it and they were unwilling to tell the child that they were sinning, now the parents mad at everybody else who says their child is sinning. And now that sin is now okay. Come on now. It's the shift and change approach. I'm shifting my attitude and I'm changing my opinion because I'm unwilling to confront my child with their sin. And finally, there's the walk and talk approach. You say, where'd you read this? I didn't read this. I walked through every one of these. I learned by experience. There's the walk and talk approach. Parents lovingly embrace their children without making excuses and walk with them through the necessary steps of admitting wrong, repentance, and restoration. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins to Him, He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all wickedness. Hmm. Our children are going to fail. They're beautiful, perfect, wonderful children, but they're not angels. 
<laughs> and they're not going to fail. But when they fail, the values that we've placed in them will determine how they live the rest of their life following their failure. I'll end with this. You know this. I've mentioned it. I had a daughter that was the rules girl. I have a son that's 32 who was the rule breaker boy. And uh, raised in the same home as his sister was. Was at church every time the doors were open. In the youth group. Just just a rambunctious kid. Didn't get in any trouble, just a boy. And then he got with the wrong crowd in college. Got involved in drinking and living the party life. And several years later, we got the call on a Friday night that every parent dreads to get. Dad, I'm in jail. I've been arrested. I need you to come get me. That was on Friday night. Saturday morning, I had to be at the uh, Shermahorn Symphony Hall to do a wedding. We went down there to do that wedding on Saturday morning. It was a time of celebration. Some friends of ours, their daughters, was getting married, and she was using the Skirmahorn Symphony Hall. It was a pretty upscale thing, you know. It wasn't at the Waffle House. <laughs> the reception was not catered by the Waffle House. The ceremony was at the Skirmahorn, and the reception was at the Country Music Hall of Fame. This was a high-dollar event, and I was the preacher. Class. <laughs> it, was a, it was a day of celebration. It was something. Our dear friends, their only daughter was getting married. And we're sitting there with smiles on our face. And on the inside, our heart is devastated. Because while we're at the skirmahorn, our son's sitting in a jail in another city. I could have called the sheriff. I, I, I officiated the wedding of the sheriff. I could have called the sheriff and got him out. The DA was a member of my church. All the judges were members of my church. I could have called them and got that taken care of, which I had done several times before. But he never changed. I didn't let the pruning process take place. And finally, noon the next day, his sister goes up and gets him. Because I'm doing this wedding. And she picks him up. And by the time he got home, he's a tears streaming every moment. Big young man, Harley Davidson riding kid, crying like a baby. And I never will forget what he said. He said, Dad, 
this morning about 5 a.m. as I sat in that concrete jail cell. Concrete floor, concrete walls, concrete ceiling, little old cell. I thought to myself, I was raised better than this. I was raised better than this. Why am I here? Train them up in the way they shall go. And the values you put in them will come back to them at their difficult moments of life. 